This is Ryan Warner, senior host of Colorado Matters, and here we are in the final week of 2021. Before the new year arrives, we're listening back to some of our favorite shows. Enjoy. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado was on lockdown, and best-selling author Peter Heller had a choice to make, whether to include the pandemic in his new thriller, The Guide, set near Crested Butte. Heller joins us for our series Turn the Page, explaining how writing helps him work through grief. There is no way through grief but to be with it. You know, you can't distract yourself. You can't drink it away. You can't drug it away. You can't travel it away. Plus, why he says the clock is ticking. I published my first novel when I was 52, right? It's something I wanted to do since I was 11. Right now, you know, I feel like life is short. I mean, I'm going all cylinders because there are so many books I want to write. And, you know, there's not that much time. So, da-da-da-da-da. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Fiction writers have a choice to make these days. Will they include the pandemic in their storylines, or won't they, making it more of an escape from reality? Colorado journalist turned best-selling novelist Peter Heller faced that decision as he wrote his latest thriller, The Guide. It picks up storylines from his last book, The River, and the guide is our selection for Turn the Page, where Coloradans read a book together and then interact with the writer. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Peter Heller answers my questions and our audiences today. And Peter, welcome back to the program. It is so great to be with you again. Before we dive into plot and characters, take us into the decision to acknowledge the virus in this new thriller, because you do include the pandemic. I didn't mean to, because <laughs> I, you know, I always start with the first line. I came up as a poet, and I'm always more interested in the music of the language than the plot or the story. And so I start with the first line, whose sound I like, and I just ride it into the story. And I had no idea that the pandemic was going to show up until it did. Um, had you begun writing? Yeah, I'd started it. I'd gotten a third of the way through or something like that. And uh, I went back to the first few pages and had my protagonist put a mask on. So I wasn't until I was about a third of the way into the book that that happened. And I was right in the middle of the pandemic. I remember the evening really, really vividly uh, that Denver locked down. I think it was March 24th. I was fishing down in Chatfield and uh, on the South Platte River that evening. And I remember I came through the gate and nobody was at the gate, no ranger. And that had never happened before. Nobody was parked out in the parking lots. 
The two fishermen that were on the river were kind of wary. They said the suckers were running, and that's what had happened in the dog stars. All the trout were gone, and it was just suckers. And I was fishing. The sun went down. I drove home, and all the businesses were closed. And I remember the hair stood up on the back of my I, I felt like Hig and the dog stars. Like this was some crazy life imitating art. So anyway, it made well, a big impression. Let me just say that the Dog yeah. Stars is an earlier novel that you wrote. Yeah. And it is about a pandemic. Yeah. It is set on the front range. And I imagine there was something creepily prescient for you about that knot of experiences. Yeah. So it made a big impression on me and it had to inform whatever novel I was going to write, I'm sure, you know, so. Was that a lot of rewriting? No, 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 no. It flowed, you know, right like the confluence of a little creek coming into a, <laughs> into a river. It flowed right into the story. It's a very Peter Heller metaphor. I wonder if you felt that including the pandemic would date the book. Do you think about posterity? Like, Man, I, I try not to think about anything when I write. I mean, really. I mean, I sit down, you know, uh, at home or at the coffee shop again now, and I tell myself that every day I say, don't think, don't think, just listen. And it's sort of a way to say, get out of the way, you know, and let the character speak. You talked about writing in the coffee shop again. I recall that that's your process. I think you like to write with a din yeah. going on. So was it a big change to have to write in the silence and the quiet of home? Yeah, I was <laughs> at the coffee shop. I play an app on my headphones that's rain on a roof, like North Carolina woods rain. And when I was at home, I started searching for apps that sounded like coffee shops. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to create that ambiance. As you sat, what, at a desk or something? Uh, no, on a couch. I was sort of, I'm like Proust. You know, Proust wrote in bed. <laughs> I didn't know that Proust wrote in bed. Yep, and he drank 60 shots of espresso every day. I don't do that. You don't do that? No. Although you do have quite a powerful beverage on the table, a triple shot energy drink of some kind. <laughs> Proust. You're going to just bring Proust up in the first five minutes of an interview, <sighs> huh? Gosh, compliment major. You know, it makes me think of how much other literature you weave into your books. And there is quite a, a bit of Chinese literature that you... Uh, weave into this one, and Japanese literature as well. Tell me about those decisions, and tell me about some of the authors that you include. Well, I think the great thing about writing fiction is that it becomes this vessel for sort of everything that you love, and everything that you know, and, and lots of things that you don't know that you know. They sort of float in out of the universe. And in the process that I use, you know, not plotting, not outlining or anything like that, I just sort of, you know, let it rip and follow the language. Inevitably, the things that I really care about sort of show up, and I never know what it's going to be. But I am completely enamored of the Tang Dynasty poets. These are the Chinese poets that wrote in the 8th and 9th century. These guys were sort of the blues men of ancient Chinese poetry. They were aficionados of loss. They could put you in just a few lines, knee-deep in a mountain creek with a mist shredding the pines, and with a few lines, you're, you're right there, you're feeling it, smelling it, and then they just break your heart. And I just love the poetry. I love its simplicity. I love its vividness. So that was bound to make it in there also. And haiku makes it in as well. Yeah, Basho, uh, you know, he's one of my favorite poets, the great Japanese haiku poet. You know, the, that's the great thing. I mean, you know, I'm sitting there in the coffee shop or on the couch at home wishing I was at the coffee shop, and I'm writing along. And why wouldn't I just 
take myself to the places that I love the most, whether it's some creek in the mountains or whether it's to the incredibly lovely language of a poet who was writing 1,200 years ago. Well, let's talk about the place in this novel, The Guide. It is an elite fishing lodge in Colorado's Rocky Mountains. And describe the setting. Okay. Like, how elite? <laughs> Very elite. Uh, so I came up as a journalist, right? And I had, I had to make a living when I got out of college. So I started writing for outdoor magazines and stuff. And later on, you know, I did a lot of adventure stories. I was a kayaker, so I did a lot of that. Then environmental stories. And later on, as I sort of got out of magazine work, I would just take stories to, you know, really plush place, beautiful places for, you know, do travel articles and stuff. So whenever I could get an assignment at like a five-star fishing lodge, I would take it because I love to fish. The fishing's always great. You always get a good guide. And, uh, you know, there's excellent food. But what I began to notice about these places, these five-star places, is that, you know, five-star service is anticipatory. Like, they anticipate your wants and needs before you even know that you want or need these things. It's almost like they're, they're watching you, <laughs> waiting to pounce with service. Well, I would, you know, I'd get an assignment at some lodge on some mountain river, and I'd decide, oh, gosh, the, that sauna sounds pretty cool, you know, the cabin over the creek. And I'd start walking down there, and someone would meet me on the trail with a pile of towels, you know, and a robe. And, I, you know, it, <laughs> it creeped me out. It really did. I realized I was much happier actually just fishing, you know, on my own, on my own little creek. So those places made an impression on me. And so I think I set this book there because I think I felt like it would be the perfect opportunity to write a thriller. And I think also... I have um, become more and more concerned about the widening, you know, wealth disparity in the country. And I think, um, you know, it sort of hurts my feelings. And these places sort of end up being symbols of that kind of wealth gap. <laughs> and you, it made me think a lot about who has access to leisure and who has time and, and money. And beauty, right? And beauty. Yeah. Do the rich have more access to beauty? It's yeah. an important question underpinning this book. Yeah. No, I, think, I think it's real. In many ways, the Kingfisher Lodge, that's what you call this elite setting, near Crested Butte illustrates that. Locals call the stretch of fishing their billionaire's mile. And your main character, Jack, is a confident outdoorsman. He grew up on a ranch in Colorado that his now elderly father still runs. How does Jack, from this ranching background feel about this elite lodge? Does he feel at home at a boutique fishing resort? Not a bit. Where he feels at home is knee deep in the river. And he feels at home with his client because he realized his first client is named Allison Kay. And he asked the manager, you know, what's with the K? And he says, well, you know, these are really rich and famous people use a lot of initials, you know. And, uh, and Jack suspects after fishing with her for a day that she's a very famous country singer. But, you know, he's sort of out of the loop because he spends half his life in the saddle. So he's not quite sure. But he feels immediately at home with this woman. She's very down to earth and she can fish. And she has a very, very dry, wry sense of humor, which he appreciates. And so he feels at home there and he feels at home, of course, in the act of fishing. But the rest of it, you know, the rest of the, the, the place, the the people there, the super rich people, the... The warm lobster tails, the beluga caviar. Yeah, right. And all the 
elk jerky you can eat. <laughs> I think that impresses him the most. <laughs> Jerky's expensive. It I, is. I get why he is impressed. You mentioned this character, Allison Kay. He is her guide. And as the book unfolds, it sort of dawns on Jack just how big a deal she is, how big a star she is. Is Allison Kay based on some real life country performer? No. No, not at all. I, I, a lot of people ask, you know, is this Alison Krauss? You know, of course. Oh. But, but I love Alison Krauss, but I don't know a thing about her. So it can't be her. It can't be her. <laughs> no. But I love the scene where he discovers that she is this country singer because she hums and sings to herself while she's fishing. And he catches that and he realizes, oh, that's who she is. I don't fly fish. I've tried some deep sea fishing with my dad. It didn't really take uh, but your book made me care about fishing. Jack especially seems to have a love affair with fish, the fish themselves. I'm going to have you read a short excerpt from early in the book. Jack has a little time to kill on his own, and so he's reeling in a formidable fish. He was almost under the bridge when he raised the rod high and brought the exhausted trout in the last few feet and unshucked the net from his belt and slid it under this beauty and cradled her in the mesh. She was a species of gold that no jeweler had ever encountered, deeper, darker, rich with tones that had depths like water. He talked to her the whole time. You're all right. You're all right. Thank you, you beauty. Almost as he had talked to himself at the shack and he wet his left hand and cupped her belly gently and slipped the barbless hook from her lip and withdrew the net. He crouched with the ice water to his hips and held her quietly into the current until half his body was numb, held and held her who knew how long and watched her gills work, and she mostly floated free between his guiding fingers, and he felt the pulsing touch of her flanks as her tail worked, and she idled. And then she wriggled hard and darted, and he lost her shape to the green shadows of the stone. Thank you, he said again, after her, but it was not so much said as an emotion released, released like the fish to the universe. He straightened. He was almost under the plank and timber bridge, and he looked up, and he saw the camera. A little foreshadowing there with the camera. I'll ask you about that in a moment. But it occurred to me, Peter Heller... That that's a love scene. Gosh, you know, when I read it, that's odd. You know, I never, I, I have never read that passage out loud. Thank you for picking that. But uh, it felt super sensuous. It almost made me blush. <laughs> you, you, that's interesting to have a new experience reading something aloud. Yeah. That camera. It's really the first indication that something is off about this lodge. Jack has this intense interaction with this trout that you've just read there. And seeing this camera feels like a violation to him. Why? Because it's the first time, you know, I left Jack at the end of the river, the last novel. He was one of the protagonists. I left him heartbroken and mostly alone. He went back to the family ranch where uh, he worked the ranch with his dad. And he's very, his dad is very taciturn very self-contained. So Jack really was, I felt like he was very alone and heartbroken. So as I was writing the first few lines, you know, there was a, a line about somebody dropping their pack on this porch of this cabin and there was the river below. Uh, I thought, 
cool. You know, there's a porch. I'm a sucker for a porch. And um, and there was Jack, and I was I was really glad to see him. Uh, hmm. You know, because I was concerned about him. And apparently, he had gotten a job. You know, fly fishing. And I thought that's good. You know, that that's that'll be good for you. Little did I know, you know, <laughs> what was going to happen. He goes fishing on that stretch that first afternoon, and it's the first time when he catches that beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous trout. It's the first time in like three years since the end of the river that he's felt any kind of real joy. I mean, he's like connected again, you know. That's why he took the job is so that he could get connected to what he loved. And he catches that fish and he feels that upwelling of joy, and it's so intimate and it's such a such a new feeling for him and then he sees the camera and what a violation you know to be intruded upon in that so personal moment and the camera is a tip-off that things are awry in this space and you know it's a thriller so i'm not interested in spoiling anything did you know this was going to be a thriller when you began writing it or does that too reveal itself in a way, because it was an integral to the method. So can I tell you about the method of this? It was so different. Sure. A few years ago, I was at a book festival outside of Palm Springs. And it was at this sort of fancy golf resort. And there was the Palm Springs Book Festival. And I don't love book festivals. Uh, a lot of times they're very hectic. And I feel like my energy gets very dispersed. And so to ground myself, I usually get up very early and I work for a couple hours. I write. So I went down to the breakfast place. I got a cup of coffee. It was like 6 a.m. And the only other writer there was Lee Child. So we had breakfast together and got to talking about process. And I said, you know, I just start with the first line, let it rip and have no idea. And he said, yeah, I do too. I was like shocked. I was like, you're kidding. I mean, have you read those Jack Reacher novels? I mean, they're just like so tightly plotted. Intricate. Intricate subplots. You yeah. know? And so I said that. And he said, yeah, no, I am. Um, I just throw everything that I can think of on against the wall in the first half, you know, dead bodies, lurking figures, your car accidents, you know, and I have no clue. And in the second half, I mirror all those. I tie up all the loose threads and whatever doesn't tie up is a red herring and I'm good. I just started laughing. I was like, you got to be kidding. It's spaghetti at the wall in yeah, some ways. Yeah. And I said, you know, I've read whole books on writing novels, Stephen King's book, John Gardner's book. You just gave me a method in two lines, and it's kind of awesome. So as I was writing Jack, you know, at this place, getting this job fly fishing, you know, it occurred to me in the first few pages, let's try Lee Child's methods just for a kick. Not so that we can write like Lee Child, but we could just see what happens when you pile on lots of random, fun, menacing <laughs> details and events. What most intrigued me about that process is what it suggests, which is that if the writer piles on this all this stuff that must seem random and then has faith that it's all going to work out, and it does, that suggests that the writer is doing an awful lot of work while he's asleep or she's asleep <laughs> or staring out the window, right? Because it all works out right. somehow. So uh, when you do that method, you're going to have a thriller. It's freeing. It is. Because it's, otherwise it's it sounds exhausting. Mm. To try to kind of build it backwards. You know? Yeah, right. All right. I think this would be a lovely time to start opening the discussion to folks in our audience. Julie McClanahan of Golden has this. Having been married in 2004 at Harmel's Ranch, I can't think that this lodge is anywhere else but there. 
<laughs> so is it, first of all, I'm not familiar with the ranch. Am I pronouncing right. it properly? Harmels? Harmels? I, I have no idea. I've never heard of it. Oh, okay. So, so it's evidently not there. But Julie, he wrote, I, I guess, in such a convincing way that you associated this with a real place. That feels like a success, Peter Heller. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Julie, thank you so much. And um, it's, you were married in 2004, so it's a little late, but congratulations. Joan P. House in Highlands Ranch. When I'm reading a great novel, she says, I often care about the characters and I end up thinking and wondering about them like friends. Mm. Joan wants to know how involved you get with your characters. And this is a great question, Joan. When do you let them go? Right. Oh, I love that question. Joan. Uh, <laughs> I never, I haven't, I haven't let go of a single one. And I don't know if that's because I'm the type of person who can't let go of things, but all my characters feel to me like dear, dear friends or family. And they live, I mean, the weird thing about writing fiction, I mean, this is so strange and wonderful. Jasper is the dog in the dog stars. And I, he lives in my heart like a dog that I, that I've had and that I lost and I still grieve. Jasper, you know, um, I still wonder about, you know, the protagonist of that book, Hig, and, you know, how he's doing. When Jack showed up, I mean, I hadn't written. The, so The River came out two years, over two years ago. I had written it a year before it came out. So it's been three and a half years since I wrote that book. And I still am concerned about Jack and I think about him. And, I and hope let me he's just right. say that you, Jack was under very trying circumstances yeah. in the river. He deals with a great loss. Yeah. I'll say no more. But I heard earlier in one of your answers the sense of really caring for him and wondering how he's doing. Yeah. Which seems interesting because you created him. I know. Isn't that weird? I mean, listen. I think 150 years ago, novelists like me who listen to voices, you know, close their eyes and just listen for the voices might be in a padded cell, right? But now we get to be novelists and come on the radio and talk to Ryan Warner. It's pretty awesome. Uh, but no, listen, I mean, it is very strange because I, when I write, I'm completely transported. I feel that I'm in a real place with real people, not characters. Uh, and that's the way it feels. And, and so that's the way it lives in my, in my heart. The answer to Joan's second question, which is, when do you let them go? The answer is you don't. You don't. You no. don't. Uh-uh. Colorado novelist Peter Heller is our guest. His latest is The Guide. It's a thriller set in Colorado's mountains. Heller joins us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters, where we read a book together, then engage with the author. In the next half hour... Heller has had a lot of loss in his life, and that's reflected in his books. He shares thoughts on moving through grief. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. December. 1914. In Denver, 10-year-old David Sturgeon is too sick to join his family downstairs around their Christmas tree. His father, an electrician, has an idea. Paint some light bulbs, green and red, string them in a long circuit around a pine his son can see from his bedroom, and keep the tree lit through the night. 
People came from all around town to see the first electrified outdoor Christmas tree. And the next December, neighbors added lights to their own trees and homes. In the 1920s, Denver's mayor allowed a light display on City Hall. By the 1950s, this annual municipal project required 25,000 bulbs and 17 miles of wiring. It's a tradition that continues, including the stipulation that the city and county buildings stay lit in a colorful cacophony of cheer well into January to greet the stock show coming to town. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. An exclusive mountain lodge near Crested Butte is the setting for the new novel The Guide by Peter Heller. Something's amiss at this hoity-toity fly-fishing resort. Surveillance cameras keep a constant eye. Guests are never to stray onto a nearby property lest they be shot at. We read this new thriller for Turn the Page, our regular reading circle. Next up, a question from a listener about a reference in the book to a real-life writer. I'm Danielle Thomas from Santa Barbara, California. And my question for Peter is if the storyline where Jack has a friendship um, with Marilyn Robinson and sits on her porch in New England and they reflect on the nature of evil, I was wondering if there was anything autobiographical in that that storyline or if that, that was a dream experience or where that came from. And let, let me just put a little meat on that bone mm. um, because Danielle is clearly a very intrepid reader and has read the book, but he's from, Jack is from ranching roots, but he has spent a good amount of time in academic circles on the East Coast. Right. And he's met a lot of uh, academic luminaries in that time, including a kind of mentor professor so that is the, right. the the center of Danielle's question. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's always ends up being, you know, autobiography in these books. And I have so much fun letting readers guess <laughs> what's real for me and what's not. But, you know, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop for fiction and poetry. And I, I, I waited until I was like 32 to do that. And this is a very prestigious program. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful writing program. And, it's a, you know, it's a master's. And I applied to both schools because, I, because it's very hard to get into. And, I, and they're separate schools, poetry and fiction. I thought it would double my chance. I got into both and I took both at the same time, which was really neat because I'm interested in the music of the language, but also in story and narrative. And so one of my great mentors was Marilyn Robinson. And, I, and, and we became friends. And I, I just loved her. Uh, sensibility, her intelligence, her humor. She was a great laugher. And We're talking about the novelist. Yeah, the novelist who Marilyn wrote Robinson. Gilead and Housekeeping. And many, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And we're sitting in her backyard drinking iced tea. And, I, and we had that conversation. I, she writes a lot about Christianity and theology. And, and I asked her, what do you think is evil? And she didn't even hesitate. And she said, impediment to being. And I've thought about that answer ever since. So just like Jack. That line stood out to me so much, Peter, that evil is impediment to being. That is, it's a lack of realizing our full selves. It could be interpreted like that. How do you interpret it? I interpret it, and I think that's what's going on in this book, as subversion of the natural order. It's a very elegant way of not spoiling anything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Why 
I spoil it? <laughs> Carrie in Broomfield wonders if Jack will appear in another book. Maybe, she asks, in Country Music Land. I'll say that a relationship of some kind develops between Jack and Allison Kay. Do you think that the the tale of that will reach another novel? Yeah, it really could. I mean, you know, just because I love the guy so much. So, you know, when The Dog Stars came out, that was my first novel. Um, people would always ask, are you Hig, the protagonist? And I would always say, well, Hig is 6'2", and he can cook. So he's clearly not me. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack, on the other hand, you know, he's a lot like me. And I'm not, I'm not saying he is me. I mean, he's like 10 times tougher. He's a much better fisherman. <laughs> but the way he engages with beauty, with books, the things that he feels aversion toward the values that he appreciates are, you know, very much like mine. And so, you know, he is in some way a doppelganger, and I wouldn't be surprised if he started talking again. There's a lot of grief around Jack, and it made me want to check in with you because your mom, the inspiration for your novel, Celine, died in 2019. In 2020, your father, whom you call your best friend, passed away. And I'll note that this year, Jim Wagner, the man who inspired the protagonist in your previous book, The Painter, also died. Are you doing okay, Peter Heller? Uh, <laughs> depends what you mean by okay. I mean, it's been a rough year, you know. Uh, I lost my dad. I lost, you know, Jim Wagner. I lost another couple of very dear friends. I lost my cat. Uh, I'm a cat person. Name your cat. Kitten. Kitten. Yeah. We... <laughs> it's deeply uninspired, but okay. <laughs> we didn't get the name on the birth certificate fast enough. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is a little cat that I found in the crook of a tree in a blizzard who was small enough to fit in the in the palm of my hand. I heard the meowing, I don't know how, through the blizzard. But So we've had her for like 17 years, and she died. You know, that was a blow. It was a really, really rough year. And I've been thinking a lot about loss. I mean, all my books have loss in them. But to have, you know, so much in one year was was rugged. And, you know, writing books like this, it's a cliche, but it, it is cathartic because, you know, you get to – there is no way through grief but to be with it. You know, you can't distract yourself. You can't drink it away. You can't drug it away. You can't travel it away. You can't work it away if you're some type A professional. You got to be with it. And, and writing these books where, you know, somebody like Jap also experiences such deep loss is a real way to be with the grief, to feel it and to work, you know, get through it. Well, and we're at a time of just extra grief, additional grief, sure. bonus grief yeah. because of the pandemic. Yeah. It's a lot for you to navigate. Yeah. You said pretty plainly, you can't drink grief away. You can't travel grief away. Are those things you tried to do? Uh, I stopped drinking like 30 years ago because I, I have a lot of that in my family and I just knew that that, was, that would be a good <laughs> good thing to do. But no, I haven't. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old now. You know, it takes a lot of ibuprofen to do the stuff that I love to do. And um, I think there's some little bit of wisdom that comes with that age. And I think I know that you can't distract yourself from this stuff. And I, I don't try anymore. I really don't. You know, the one sort of therapy for all of that is to be outside and to be, you know, really immersed in, in wild country. Whatever I'm feeling, 
I won't necessarily feel joy because I may be grieving, but it just makes me feel so grounded and centered. And you know, when I'm when I am myself knee deep in a creek, a mountain creek, and fishing, and I'm smelling the spruce and on the wind, and I'm feeling the changes in temperatures as I step into the shadow. And you know, I, that's where I feel like you know I can get grounded and deal. We have talked a fair amount about Jack. I want to talk a little bit about developing the character Allison Kay. I feel like there is a long history of men writing women characters badly, making them two-dimensional, sexualizing them, failing to capture their authentic experiences. What kind of thought do you give to that when you're writing, as a man, a character like Alison Kay? Well, you know, I've had some, you know, I don't know how well I did. You know, we do the best we can. I did write Celine, you know, and that was an entire book from the point of view of an elderly woman who happened to be based on my mother. A detective, right? Yeah, a private investigator. Yeah. And, you know, that's what mom was. And um, two years ago, I wrote a book called The Orchard, which is from the point of view of an eight-year-old girl. And it is simply, the book is simply about her mother, Haley, who is a Tang Dynasty Tang poetry translator, sort of legendary, who moves with her little daughter to an orchard in southern Vermont. And it's just about this little girl and her mom and their friend Rosie and their dog Bear. And it has a lot of Chinese poetry in it, which I wrote (laughs) because it's in translation, this fictional Chinese poet named Li Shui. And it was just the funnest thing to write, but it was all from the point of view of this little girl. And it was so freeing to write it. And I just loved it. I don't know how well I did with Alison Kay and, you know, you be the judge in the guide, but I loved writing her and I loved writing she and Jack together because they have such a, uh, you know, right away uh, in their first conversation, they're sort of assessing each other, you know, because uh, they, they know they're going to be together for the next week. And immediately they both sense in the other the, a very dry sense of humor, which they appreciate, which I mentioned before. And... Um, a certain earthiness and a no BS quality to both of them. And I, so I loved writing their interaction. That was actually my favorite part, uh, you know, in the book was writing those two together in their conversations. And so I, I hear you saying that you just do it. You just try it. Right. Do the best you can. I mean, you know. It's yeah. not something you've studied or something you've sought input on. No, but my first, all my first readers are women. My wife is my very first reader. I always read her chunks. And then Lisa Jones, wonderful writer, lives in Boulder. Dear, dear old friend is my uh, second reader. And Helen Thorpe, uh, you know, is my other second reader. Do they ever give you pointers about writing women? No, but, you know, they would. I mean, if they saw anything that was egregious, they would certainly tell me. I mean, I read chunks to Kim and she's at the other end of the couch and she'll be, start nodding off. And she'll say, too much fishing. <laughs> and then I cut it in half, you know, and she's always right. <laughs> so. Linda Lee from Westminster notes that at a critical, violent point in the book, Jack says, the tea spilled. It smelled like constant comment. Then the action picks right up. Why, Linda asks the aside, <laughs> that's wonderful constant comment is a yeah, mass yeah. produced tea there was no reason there's no I mean the thing is there's no reason I mean when I write the process that I use to write is so improvisational 
And I'm so in the flow that I really, I really, really do not think about this stuff much. And um, it makes it difficult for me when I go to a place like France. And Ryan, you and I have talked about being in France and with the readers there because they're so intellectual. They're, they're hyper intellectual in France, which I really appreciate. Such close readers and they're um, so erudite. And so they'll ask questions all about, you know, light motifs and references to this and that and which there are but it was all done unconsciously you know and so i have a hard time giving them satisfactory answers you know all i can really say is you know well that's just the way it happened you know um, they i guess they find that sort of refreshing <laughs> well just to note inherent in linda's question is smell and you write beautifully about smell and i think as someone in radio who does writing for the ear, I think actually that smell is the most underutilized sense in radio writing, in novel writing, and I'm so grateful you invoke it. Tell me about smell in your writing. You know, you're always told to use, you know, your senses because we trust our senses and we trust writer's senses, you know, in, in a written work more than we trust, you know, what goes through our brains, the thinky think. And, uh, Somewhere along the way, I discovered the power of smell to evoke for me a place as I was writing. So smell and place. Smell is, I think, the sense most linked to memory. Mm. I mean, have you ever walked into a room and smelled something and been taken back to your childhood or walked outside or put your face into a towel that's been dried out in the sun and all of a sudden that brings you back to some place when you were little? You know, for me, I was an exchange student in France you made reference to France earlier. And I was really homesick. So I would go to this perfume store and I would smell my mom's perfume. Oh, I love that. And that it would transport great. me. It would just like solve yeah. the homesickness. Oh, that's brilliant. Ryan in Denver says, I felt myself wishing that the book was longer than it is. How did you know when the guide was done? Yeah, a good question. I mean, it, it, it could have been longer. I mean, all my books could have been longer. And um, I, I cannot answer that question with any, any intelligence. <laughs> it's sort of instinct. I mean, it really is. Well, earlier you talked about your wife giving you feedback on yeah. fishing scenes that were too long. Is the feedback you ever get, this ended a chapter ago or this ended... No, but I am getting some feedback on on this book that people would, you know, were sorry to have it end when it did. And, uh, you know, it's too bad you can't, you know, it can't be like a living organism, a novel, where you could go back in and just every once in a while write a few extra scenes and send them out to your readers and have them somehow integrate into the book that they have. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, you know, there's the internet now. Yeah, I mean... Peter Heller. Right. Do it, do it. <laughs> That'd be neat. This question comes from Kaya Stulak of Littleton. Kaya actually heard the promos for this event where I dug out an observation that you made years ago hmm. in a previous interview about how dark sometimes your novels get. Mm -hmm. And apparently a friend once told you, I don't remember you being that dark. You were such a sweet little boy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Kaya... As a follow-up to this question, and Kaya, thank you for listening so carefully. That's lovely. Kaya wonders, where did the darkness come from, Peter Heller? Right. I mean, I remember, um, you know, D.H. Lawrence writing about 
Ben Franklin in the wonderful essay, and he and he said that you know all our souls, our spirits, are these dark forests <laughs> with all these like little demons running around. <laughs> and I think he was talking about himself, but I do think we all have um, a fair measure of darkness. I also think that every writer's work is sort of like a mountain spring. And if you've ever gone and, you know, drunk from a mountain spring, you know, some are clear and sweet, some are a little silty, some have a have a mineral taste, maybe a coppery taste, some are green, some are blue. And I think, you know, it just happens that, you know, my mountain spring, my wellspring contains a lot of loss. And I think, you know, loss is maybe not always dark, but it tends to live in a more shadowy place than other emotions. And um, I don't know why that is, but it is that way. I've come to appreciate the power one can get in writing that springs from a combination of beauty and loss. That's just the way I work. Stephen Eckertz, who's in Salida. I'm very jealous of Stephen. I just love Salida so yeah, much. Yeah, me too. Stephen says, Peter, after reading The Painter and then The Dog Stars, I figured that you must be a fly fisherman and maybe a pilot. Having described already your method for writing fiction, what's your method for nonfiction? And I'll say, again, by way of background, that you wrote several nonfiction books and many journalistic you know, articles. Yeah, so that's a completely different process because you know, we are responsible to these people that are committed and passionate and, and events that have occurred and are historical. And so you know, it's really important then to get it right. So in those books, whenever I'm on assignment, I take the most ridiculous amount of notes. A lot of my journalism tended to be covering expeditions and um, campaigns like Sea Shepherd's campaign in Antarctica, things like oil spills in the Gulf. Whenever I go on those assignments, I just I am writing as fast as I can all the time. I come home with you know a thousand pages of notes which I can barely read, and then I write my story. And but before I do, I think very hard about the progression, the structure, you know what I want to say, and, I, and then I check my facts, you know not once, not twice, but three times and with multiple sources. And it's a very, very different process. And so, you know, I feel like once, you know, I start making it all up, there's no going back, really. It's so freeing. Patricia Lejeune in Boulder says, I have a feeling that writing is easy for you because when you speak, you are often very poetic. It's a nice thing to say, Patricia, about our guest. Thank you. And she wonders, do you likely have many more books in you? There is a theme developing to some of the questions, Peter, which is people want more. <laughs> they want it longer. They want more. Uh, gosh, I hope so. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I published my first novel when I was 52, right? It's something I wanted to do since I was 11. So right now, you know, I feel like life is short. I mean, I'm going, you know, 100 miles an hour. I'm going all cylinders because there are so many books I want to write. And, you know, there's not that much time. So, it's so fatalistic. <laughs> well, it's realistic. I mean, no, I'm writing as fast as I can, and I, and I love it. And I, I will hopefully write until, you know, I, I can't think anymore or drop dead. <laughs> 
Peter Heller, in this novel, you reference a real-life event that took place in Crested Butte in 2014. It's one of the most absurd stories I've ever covered. They painted the historic district Bud Light Blue and got local bars to give away only its products. That's right, no Coors beer featured in Coors Country. And they invited a thousand winners of an online contest. Make your case and we'll make the town. And several thousand local residents to experience what they called fully integrated branded materials. This was the weekend that Crested Butte was made to look like a Smurf. <laughs> and he tells that as they, as he and Allison Kay have their first dinner, they're strolling up, you know, the street in Crested Butte, and he says, you know, they they painted the street here blue one day, you know, for for Bud, and she said, oh, she says, did they respect themselves in the morning? And Jack says. <laughs> I don't think it had a lot to do with respect. <laughs> a little prod at Crested Butte. I mean, there was just a huge discussion as this idea surfaced, whether Crested Butte should sort of sell itself even for a time to a beer company or not. Right. And it made me wonder if you sock away strange events in the news like that. And I don't know, do you have a card file of something like that? Or is that just from the wellspring? No, that's, uh, you know, I'm just a baleen whale, you know, just (laughs) swimming through the world. (laughs) Of story krill. Yes, exactly. Tom LaRoque from Golden asks, are there enough natural resources to go around? If we democratize fly fishing, will that exhaust the supply? Are we already there? Tom is wrestling with a lot there about exclusivity, access, and overuse. Right. And I think the only way to deal with that, I think, you know, this access to beauty has to be democratized. I think the way to deal with it is the way we've dealt with, you know, for instance, the Grand Canyon. And it it just has to be well-managed and thoughtfully managed. And, you know, I don't mind, you know, waiting two years to get a permit on Gates of Lador uh, to go kayaking for, you know, four days. Because I know that, you know, the thing is so well managed. And when I, when I paddle into a camp, there's not going to be a cigarette butt or a pile of ashes. So it is a very tough question to wrestle with. I, mm. I'm not denying, you know, how hard it is. But, um, but you know, you know the, permit systems. Permit and, systems. And bus systems. They have proven themselves to work well. Yeah. The other thing is, is that, Wild places are self-selecting. I mean, I was just in Yellowstone. I finished the book tour for the guide in Missoula, Montana, and I was fishing. Then I went into Yellowstone for a week, and I camped, and I fished. And the road, you know, if there was a buffalo or a wolf or a coyote or a bear, you know, there were 150 cars. But as soon as I uh, hiked up a creek for a mile, there was almost nobody. And so, you know, that's another way that these places uh, sort of are self-selecting and Taking the, the road less traveled yeah. after the very traveled road, yeah. going a little bit beyond. Yeah, sure. Jack, your main character in the guide, has a mantra, a question that he asks himself when he's feeling down. What is it, and what does it tell us about him? What could be better than this? What Jack, could be better than this? Yeah. It's a way to pinch himself. Yeah, right. That's a good way of thinking about it. To remind himself that, I mean, Jack has had a rough time in his life. He lost his mother when he was 11. He's dealt with a lot of loss. But he also spends, you know, lots of time out in wild country. And 
doing stuff that he really, really loves. Like back home when he's on the ranch, he's riding his horse. He's spending nights outside. Um, he's in the saddle, you know. He's making coffee over an open fire. He's fishing. He likes working on the ranch. He loves the books that he reads. He's an avid, avid reader. And so he, even with all these losses, he has to pinch himself now and then and just say, hey, what could be better than this? Look at this poem that I'm reading. Look at this creek that I'm fishing. Look at this wonderful person that I'm spending the day with. And I think it's, you know, again, as I feel close to Jack, it's something that I, that I do and I have to do to remind myself. It's reminding yourself, but it's also convincing yourself, I think, sometimes. Exactly. And so, you know, some of us who have dealt with a lot of loss and stuff, you know, do that. You know, we, we convince ourselves that it's really pretty awesome. But, you know, in the act of acknowledging that sort of gratitude comes the feeling of gratitude. Uh, so it's sort of self-fulfilling. Do you have a gratitude practice? You know, there are apps now that help you track the things you're grateful for day to day. I've tried to use them, but it feels a bit too regimented. I, I, I have my first cup of coffee on my porch every morning, and I always say, you know, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm grateful for two things. But it always ends up being like 11. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good position yeah. to be in. Peter Heller, thank you so much for being with us. It is such a pleasure, as always. Thank you, Ryan. Colorado novelist Peter Heller recorded in our performance studio and with a virtual audience. His new thriller is called The Guide. Heller joined us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Read with us again in the new year. Our next pick is a mystery called All That Is Secret by Colorado author Patricia Raybon. Her protagonist, a sleuth, is also a pioneering black professor navigating the KKK when the Klan ran Denver. Pick up All That Is Secret and join us in February. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 